It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is Mississippi Edition. It's 8.30 on Monday, August 1st. I'm Desiree Frazier. On today's show, Dr. Thomas Dobbs reflects on his tenure as Mississippi's health officer. Then a new report examines the inadequacy of public health funding. Plus, some Mississippians can get financial assistance to install a storm shelter. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. For the first time since 2018, the Mississippi Department of Health will be under the careful guidance of someone other than Dr. Thomas Dobbs. Dobbs became Mississippi State Health Officer that year in what would become a tenure marked by the evolving challenges of the coronavirus pandemic. He announced his departure from the post in March and Friday marked his final official day in office. Last week, we spent some time talking with Dr. Dobbs about his four-year term as the state's top medical official. In part one, Dobbs recalls the evolving response to the coronavirus pandemic and how he feels about where Mississippi is moving forward. I'm feeling really good. I'm, I'm proud of the work that we've done. And, you, you know, it was always going to be a a temporary assignment for me before I had to go back to being a, a, a sort of normal doctor. And I'm also feeling really good about our future. We've got great leadership, and I think that Dr. Edney, the new health officer, is going to do amazing work. So you didn't come to stay in that position? Well, not forever. I mean, you know, when you're when you're a state health officer, you can't be a physician, right? You, you, you can't practice, really. And so I had, you know, planned to stay about four to five years to try to do something worthwhile, and it's been about four years. And um, and having Dr. Edney here as, as you know, the, the next guy up to bat, I think it's going to be really good for the state. Now, Dr. Edney is going to have some big shoes to fill. And uh, as you know, Mississippi has a lot of issues going on. I want to start out with COVID-19. Um, for four years as state health officer, Having you board certified in internal medicine and infectious disease, I would assume definitely was vital in managing during this global health crisis. Yeah, you know, certainly I think that my background in communicable diseases and previous study epidemiologist was really was useful, especially when we talk about addressing sort of communicable disease outbreaks. So I think that was that was really a good a good background. 
but also, you know, I had, had a fantastic team, and obviously Dr. Byers was great. Um, Dr. Edney stepped in to help join us in the middle or at the front end of the pandemic, and he was a phenomenal resource. But, you know, there's so many other challenges, right? I mean, we, we have so many other things, uh, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, maternal and infant mortality, and um, a, a substance abuse. And I think Dr. Edney brings a whole new complement of skills and expertise that will help take us, you know, one, you know, several steps beyond where we've come. When you talk about the pandemic, COVID-19, you had to advise Mississippi political leaders, healthcare providers, school officials, businesses, residents on how to protect themselves, what to do, what not to do, long-term care facilities. That was a heavy lift. How did you coordinate that? Well, you know, everybody has their role, and, and I would like to, you know, recognize other leaders in other roles. You know, as 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 medical and public health leaders, we have, in many ways, an advisory role. Now, we do have some authority over certain sort of areas like hospitals and nursing homes and stuff where, you know, there are directives from the federal government that we help make sure that they can do successfully. But with a lot of folks like schools, um, with the political leaders, when it comes to, like, local interventions, masks and all that sort of thing, it's it's a partnership. And it's our role to provide the best evidence, the best data, the best um, procedures and ways to save lives, but it takes it takes uh, the leadership of our elected officials to make the hard decisions. And so having those partnerships, having those, uh, you know, interchanges so that they can make the best decisions, it's teamwork is, is really what it is. And that, that makes it a lot easier. And you're right. That is all true. But, Mr. Dobbs, you traveled the whole state going from town to town, answering questions, having meetings, did you have sleepless nights? Yeah, it was. There was a lot. There was a good bit of sleep deprivation going on there for a while. It was. It was nice once I was able to start getting some, some you know, some some good sleep. We are seeing that cases are rising again, and as of this week, Tuesday, the health department reported more than seventeen hundred cases. How do you see this happening? Because people aren't masking, they're tired of it, they're not social distancing. Your thoughts on what's ahead for us? Well, you know, it's a different scenario than we had previously, right? I mean, a lot of people are getting COVID, and the mortality rate's not the same, right? It's a lot lower. And and that's kind of consistent with what we might have expected with the combination of an evolving virus and then our evolving immunity to it. So, you know, pretty much everybody, you know, 99% probably of folks in Mississippi have some degree of underlying immunity. It's just not fully protective because the virus is changing. And with these types of viruses, not just coronaviruses, but all types of upper respiratory viruses, your immune response wanes over time. And so that's expected. Um, you know, masks do work. And if we all wanted to wear masks in public, it would prevent flu and it would prevent COVID. Uh, but, you know, as a society, we have, you know, we don't, we haven't chosen that pathway, right? I think, you know, in a lot of other parts of the world, they do do it as a as a routine, um, you know. It's 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 just kind of part of where we are. But we're in such a better place than where we are. I think that you know it's a lot of it's personal responsibility now, uh, rather than sort of collective sort of interactions. We've had over twelve thousand six hundred people die from this virus over the past two years. That's quite a number. Yeah, and that's probably an undercount too. And the other thing is that's really sad is a lot of those folks didn't didn't have to leave us. Most of those deaths happened after a vaccine was available. And, and 
and most of those deaths, the vast majority of those deaths were folks who were not vaccinated. You know, all of the kids who died, all the pregnant women who died were not fully vaccinated. So I hope we can learn going into the future to use our tools effectively, especially when we look to the threats of the future. You know, they found polio in the sewage in London, right? We're not, we're not going to be, you know, we're still vulnerable to all of these vaccine-preventable diseases. We don't need to forget the lessons of the past. We have highly effective, extremely safe vaccines and measures to prevent these horrible scourges that we've had throughout our history. I mean, we've forgotten um, how bad it was. If we have a resurgence of polio because we let our guard down, that'll be a real tragedy. We need to learn the lessons and not let you know the nonsense of, of the loud voices of, of, of ignorance drive the conversation when science has so many of the answers. As you mentioned that, you know, there was such resistance um, about wearing masks, distancing, as you mentioned, getting vaccinated. How how did you feel about that? Was it frustrating for you? How did you manage that? It was tough because you were watching folks die who didn't have to die, right? And and, and how to communicate that in a way that folks it was a real it was a real disappointment that more people didn't step forward and speak up for these measures that are going to save lives, right? For some people, it might have seemed politically expedient. But I'll say that, you know, the, the speaker, lieutenant governor, and, the, and the, um, uh, the governor, lieutenant governor, all spoke out in favor of vaccination because they knew it would save, it would save lives. But it's something that collectively we could have done a better job as a state and as a country to make sure we offered the full measure of protection for everyone. It was painfully, painfully difficult to watch people die unnecessarily for no good reason other than sort of the clanging and, and angry voices that were just the voices of chaos that didn't really contribute positively to the conversation. And I'm afraid, just assuming from what we're hearing um, in the media now, some of those same voices are still out there. In other states, health officials quit because they and their families were threatened, their homes were picketed. Um, I understand that you were harassed. You know, I would say that there was some harassment and some, you know, some threats and, and, and things of that nature. But, you know, the support was overwhelming in comparison, right? Um, you know, for every kind of wacky negative or even threatening uh, communication, there were 10 or 20 positives say thank you for the great work you're doing, thank you for your team, thank you for being there for us. So, you know, I, I, overall it was a very positive experience work, working with Mississippians. You know, if we think about the vaccine too, the majority of Mississippians are vaccinated, right? So the majority of people got it. And, you know, at the time a lot of those were kids too, so I would say that the vast majority – or a significant majority, and the vast majority, especially our most vulnerable people, did get vaccinated. So I think there is a success. I think there's just room for more success. Dr. Thomas Dobbs became state health officer in 2018. His last day on the job was Friday. In part two of our conversation, we look more at his tenure in office, including a milestone Supreme Court case. There's a, a, a doc in um, in Virginia, he was really mad because his name was Dobbs, and he asked, how dare I do it? And I just explained it to him, and he was very apologetic and just understood, you know, that this is a, a burden that um, I really didn't ask for, nor did I want, as far as, like, the linkage to, to this. So That's tomorrow. Coming up, a new report examines the inadequacy of public health funding. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. On the original Southern Remedy, the doctor is always in and ready to take your questions about health care. To subscribe, search for Southern Remedy on any podcasting app. You can email a question to remedy at mpbonline.org. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi on Mississippi edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. $4.5 billion annually. That's how much experts estimate the entire national public health system is underfunded. It's the subject of a new report from the Trust for America's Health. In it, the organization examines a number of contributing factors in what they call an inadequate response to the COVID-19 pandemic. MPB's Michael Gidry discusses more with President and CEO Dr. J. Nadine Garcia. Funding for the public health system has not kept up kept up uh, with the public health needs of the, of the nation. And the pandemic, uh, many of the tragic impacts, the health and economic impacts of the pandemic, we see as actually uh, a result of the chronic underfunding uh, of the of the public health system. And that that's been a detriment and and puts people's lives uh, and livelihoods at risk. The um, investment in public health um, has been under-resourced for decades. Um, and what we know is that um, what we really need to do is substantially increase the core funding to support the public health system in terms of its infrastructure and workforce to meet the growing public health needs and, and threats facing communities all across this country. So I guess based on that, where is that underfunding? At what level is that underfunding most strongly felt? Uh, I mean, is it at the state level with, with, with admin and oversight, or is it at local levels where, you mean, it's, it's doctors and clinics and patients on the ground? Well, that, that underfunding of the public health system is, is at, actually at all levels, at the local, state, and federal levels. Uh, when, we, when we think about the impacts of, of chronic underfunding of public health, it, for example, makes it difficult uh, to hire and, and recruit and retain a public health workforce, uh, to be able to modernize our surveillance and data systems, uh, to have uh, modern communication systems, and be able to have funding to support uh, the type of community partnerships and policy development that uh, public health needs to do as a core foundational capability. Um, There are actually data that show uh, that public health needs to increase its workforce by 80%. That's about 80,000 FTEs at the state and local level to provide the basic minimum public health services on a day-to-day basis. And so the challenge of public health funding is that uh, at all levels, it tends to be siloed and often disease-specific, and there's been little investment uh, in core, flexible um, funding for public health infrastructure for areas like um, flexible funding for the workforce, communication, data surveillance, laboratory capacity. Uh, And so uh, because of that underfunding, it's been hard to be able to quickly scale up as well during times of emergency to respond to the growing number of public health emergencies that we have, whether it's infectious disease outbreaks or weather-related emergencies, such as, for example, these heat waves that we're seeing all across the country. 
you estimate, the Trust for America's Health estimates that uh, nationally it's about $4.5 billion in underfunding. Uh, people might hear that number and think, well, that's a lot. We're already spending so much money on X, Y, or Z. Um, but I would like to ask you to respond uh, to this, and that is uh, when we think about the investment uh, in public health, $4.5 billion in investment in public health on the front end, what does the financial balance of that look like on the back end uh, when investment might allow people to treat um, treat for wellness rather than for sickness? That's right. We, we, we really do need to um, move our nation and, and, and our communities around the country to more of this investment in prevention and public health. And it's important to understand the function and the role that public health departments play every single day in, in promoting and protecting the health of the residents of their community. You know, they actually help to assure and really work to assure the conditions that promote health and well-being. So they're trying to prevent illness and injury. So that can be things such as uh, helping to do health education around um, the risks of uh, tobacco and alcohol. That's helping to um, administer uh, childhood immunizations and adult immunizations. Uh, that's ensuring that there are worker safety standards to ensure that workers um, are working in safe and, and healthy environments. Um, and it's also doing that type of tracking around diseases to see if there might be a potential outbreak and then being able to quickly respond uh, to those outbreaks. Um, by making that investment, one, we know as a, as a country, we're actually spending, actually in the year 2020, over $4 trillion um, in health spending. Um, but uh, in a typical year, less than 3% of our health spending is spent in prevention and public health. And so when we make these investments in prevention and public health, that is really going to help us with regards to helping uh, control health care costs, uh, improving the quality of lives for, for so many across the country, helping to address uh, the health disparities that we see in far too many communities and communities of color and low-income communities where um, they struggle with making ends meet, that we know that these communities are often the ones that face these poor health outcomes. And so we really need to shift our focus to investing in the front end in prevention and public health to prevent that illness and injury uh, from happening, and then also being able to be ready when those emergencies happen that we can scale up our efforts and be able to protect uh, the health and well-being of communities. Well, Dr. Janadine Gracia, thank you so much, President and CEO of Trust for America's Health, for um, providing a little snapshot of your latest report for us. Thank you for the opportunity. Coming up, a new emergency preparedness program is helping bring more storm shelters to eight Mississippi counties. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're print impaired, MPB's radio reading service is here for you. Our dedicated team of volunteers bring the world of news and entertainment to you. For information and to see if you qualify, call us at 601-432-6301. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is launching the Individual Safe Room Program using disaster relief funding from FEMA. Currently, the program is open to residents in the eight counties which all received a backwater flooding tornado disaster declaration. Mallory White, spokesperson with MEMA, Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, shares more with our Kobe Vance. 
We have about $2.5 million available. Um, we anticipate building over 600 safe rooms with that grant money. And currently, because of where the funding is coming from, it is tied to the backwater flooding tornado disaster, which is disaster number 4429. And because of where the funding is coming from, um, the counties that were declared in that, in that disaster for individual assistance are currently the only ones available or eligible for that right now. And those are eight counties. That's Clay, Humphreys, Issaquina, Lowndes, Monroe, Sharkey, Warren, and Yazoo. And so once the deadline hits of October 31, and if we have more uh, funding still available from this grant, we will then open it up to the counties that had public assistance from the backwater flooding. And if there is money still available from that same grant, we'll open it up statewide. And so I just want people to know that this is, this is only the beginning of this new individual safe room program. What kind of storm shelters can this funding go to? So these storm shelters or safe rooms, um, it depends on where you are. If you're in a floodplain area, you could be eligible for an above-ground uh, storm shelter, or you could get one um, in-ground as well. Uh, it depends on what you want. Do you want something that's built for your whole entire family? Is it just you living in there? Um, that depends on the, the size and the cost of how much um, you're, you're willing to spend. And like I said, it is a reimbursement program, so we ask people to um, keep all the documentation that goes along with it, receipts, everything. And so we've tried to break the process down as easy as possible on how to apply. Um, it's not on our website, but it is my.msema.org. And you will select the Safe Room Application tab at the top, and then you will select Grant 4429 because that's the disaster grant that the money is tied to and then you'll complete that application. Do not, do not start building your safe room right now. You cannot build your safe room in this program without MEMA approval first. So um, if someone has a current safe room or shelter, they are not eligible to be reimbursed for the one that they've already built. It has to go through this program. Are there any stipulations on what kind of uh, storm shelter or safe room somebody can get? Is there requirements by FEMA or MEMA on what ratings they're able to hold up to? Um, it will have to be, and you're, the contractors will know this as well. There are certain stipulations that go along with an individual safe room, and I'll be honest, I don't know it off the top of my head. Um, we do have a frequently asked questions page on our website, though, that answers a lot of the questions that you're asking. And so we do encourage people to look at that. Um, read all of these questions and answers very carefully to better understand. And then lastly, when it comes to building locations, um, where can somebody potentially build this? Is this something that would go inside their house or in their yard, garage? It could be. It could be. Um, I know some people who have done it in their garage underground, uh, people who've done it out back underground, probably where it's best and make sure you're not hitting any type of important, you know, power lines, water lines, things like that, that your contractor will be able to identify for you so you're not hitting anything. Um, I would also just make sure that it is accessible. And you can do an above ground. Um, if you live in a floodplain area, you will not be allowed 
to have uh, an in-ground storm shelter, it will have to be above ground, and FEMA will require some additional documentation for that as well. Is there anything else we'd like to share with Mississippians about this program or storm safety in general? We will get the question, and we've already got the question, well, why not my county? And I just want people to understand that it is this funding is tied to a specific disaster, and we, we have to follow the steps. We ask that people just be patient with us because it is our goal to eventually open this up to all citizens in the state and it, it be accessible to everyone in the state as well. Uh, we've kind of behind scenes called it a, a pilot program because we're relaunching this. Uh, we had a safe room program that ended in 2012 where we built um, around 10,000 individual safe rooms. We helped fund those. And so um, we just ask people to be patient. This is only the beginning of this safe room program. Mallory, thank you so much for talking with us today. Yeah, no problem. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.